Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, and welcome to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. Okay, welcome back to episode three of the uh, Pre-Hospital Podcast. And in this episode, it's a bit of kind of one-off. We're talking about COVID-19 in pre-hospital critical care. Um, So there's other podcasts and social media platforms that have discussed... um, COVID-19 in pre-hospital care more generally and and obviously COVID-19 in hospital Um, but we just wanted to have a bit of a discussion about um, the uh, management of COVID-19 patients uh, specifically within critical care. Um, So speaking to me today I've got my colleague Ben Paul. Um, Ben why don't you introduce yourself mate? Yeah thanks Silas and thanks for having me on board. Um, So in terms of my background I've been working for the NHS in various clinical roles for the last 11 years. Um, of the last nine of these, they've been with the ambulance service. Um, and during that time, I've been lucky to have a number of roles. So starting initially as a, an emergency care assistant before going on to complete my paramedic training by the university route. And then from there, I've gone on to undertake a number of specialist roles in a variety of settings, including both the control room as well as in education. And then more recently as a team leader. Um, and currently, I'm working as a student critical care paramedic based in the southeast of England. Nice one. Cheers for that, mate. Um, and yeah, I think we'll be working together um, in the future, so I look forward to that. Um, cheers for coming on. I think um, it's going to be useful to have a bit of discussion about COVID-19 in pre-hospital critical care, um, which is something, you know, neither of us are experts in COVID-19, but, you know, are um, becoming experienced in, in critical care. So hopefully we can we can have a good go of that. Before we do, I think it's worth just highlighting that 
Um, the kind of the stuff we want to discuss is a summary of, of really what we know today um, based on information that's been published. But um, we should remain aware, as should listeners, that the knowledge around COVID-19 is obviously increasing daily. Um, and therefore, what, what we're kind of discussing today uh, may be superseded by, you know, more updated knowledge and, and understanding of the disease um, going forward. So on that basis, it's important to um, stay abreast of the literature as much as possible by doing kind of own reading and, and, and kind of keeping on top of stuff um, ourselves. Um, and, and finally, the, the, the stuff we're going to talk about is, is you know, not intended to replace policy or guidelines or, or procedures, um, but just intended as an overview. And so we just want to reiterate the importance of kind of following your own trust guidance, uh, guidance um, in, in dealing with these cases. Uh, is that fair to say? Yeah, very much so. Not experts, but just sort of muddling through sort of the wealth of information that's out there and just trying to sort of get it in something digestible for our listeners. Cool. So, um, mate, why don't you give us a bit of a um, summary, a bit of a background into what is COVID-19? Yeah, so I think keeping it very simple, coronaviruses, they're a large family of viruses, um, some of which are known to spread from animals. SARS and MERS are just two examples of these. They're not a brand new thing. They have existed for some time. They're just now in the public spotlight as such. So COVID-19 is specifically what we're going to talk about, and that's short for Coronavirus Disease 2019. It's a novel coronavirus, originally reported to the WHO, the World Health Organization, in December 2019. And as we all know, it's spread across the globe, leading to its classification as a global emergency and then later as a pandemic in March. The virus is called Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, or SARS-CoV-2, while the disease process itself is actually called COVID-19. Yeah, nice one. So that, that's a kind of useful overview, isn't it? Um, the, the other thing that people have been talking about a lot, and it's come up in the media, I think, is uh, this concept of r naught um, or the reproduction number. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I'll do my best and try not to discredit any epidemiologists at the time. But essentially, the R0 or the reproduction number um, is what everyone, I think, is quite focused on. So people have heard about flattening the curve. And that's directly what we're trying to talk about with the R0. And there's two numbers that we're interested in, the basic reproduction number and the effective reproduction number. And quite confusingly, they're just used interchangeably, both terms, as the R0. So the basic reproductive number, this is the, a basic concept in epidemiology and defined as the number of new people infected by a single individual in a susceptible population, and crucially at the start of an epidemic before widespread immunity has developed and before any attempt has been made at immunisation. And so if the R0 is one, then each infected person will infect one other person and the disease will just continue to spread steadily. As the R0 increases above one, the disease will spread by this number exponentially. And if the R0 is less than one, the disease will naturally die out on its own. Fine. Yeah, that makes sense. I think um, you've made a fairly good effort there, and I wouldn't worry about upsetting any epidemiologists because I think it's very unlikely that any of them listen, mate. <laughs> yeah, so that, that kind of makes sense then. So the, the aim that we're trying to get to is, is kind of getting the R0 below one. Um, you, you mentioned the R0 of other, other diseases or, or things that have happened in the past. Um, for, for a bit of context, what is the R0 as it relates to some of the previous epidemics we've dealt with? Yeah, so SARS, for example, uh, the literature widely says it has an R0 of 3, MERS 0.5 and Ebola, it's probably a little bit more recent, isn't it, with an R0 of 2. 
the R naught for COVID, it depends on which papers you read. You know, initially um, we were looking at papers that were saying 2.7 to 2.9, uh, but I've read a, ch- a Chinese paper this morning saying an R naught as high as 5.7, 5.8. Um, now that they're looking back, um, I suppose with hindsight, being able to look at more data. So R naught is affected by a number of things. It's affected by the proportion of people susceptible and the population density itself also affected by the infectiousness of the organism and the rate of disappearance of cases, whether that be by patients recovering or unfortunately also by death. And the zero, essentially the, R, the zero in R0 means this number is estimated when zero people have immunity to the organism. And that's what makes it the basic number. Fine. So it's a bit of an early estimation. And I guess that kind of makes sense then, because I guess if a disease is really deadly it's not going to spread that quickly because people won't have you know they won't have the disease long enough to spread it i guess is is one of the kind of things so i can see how it gets a bit bit more complex um the the other thing you mentioned there was the effective reproduction number how how does that differ from the r naught yeah so the effective reproduction number i think is a number that you almost see on the news and that's the number of people in a population infected by an individual at any specific time and that's what we're talking about when we're trying to flatten the curve and bring that R naught number down. We're actually talking about the effective reproduction number. So this is changed either by immunity, whether that be through a vaccine or from having the infection itself. Although, crucially, we don't know with COVID-19 whether if you've had the infection before, whether you've now developed immunity. Um, and it's also reduced through stopping infected individuals, including those who are asymptomatic, coming into contact with susceptible hosts. And clearly that's what we're trying to do at the moment through social distancing. Yeah, fair enough. And and so I guess um, on the topic of social distancing then, um, you know, we've got advice from the government on, on social distancing, which we're hopefully trying to keep up with. Um, and there's there's other advice, certainly from the NHS, about those who are at high risk and very high risk in, in relation to the illness. Um, so I think it's useful to be aware, isn't it, of, of, of those kind of factors, especially in our role. So um Per the NHS current uh, list, um, very high risk is considered to be those uh, who are immunocompromised and those with severe lung conditions um, such as severe COPD or severe asthma um, or pulmonary fibrosis and those who are pregnant with a heart condition. Um, The people on the high risk list include those over the age of 70, um, pregnancy, people with moderate asthma or COPD um, and then a list of things such as heart disease, hypertension, CKD, liver disease. Um, etc so it's not an exhaustive list but it kind of gives us an idea of the the people that might be um, slightly at high risk yeah definitely and I think a fairly standard sort of list of at-risk groups isn't there there's no real big surprises there I don't think but in terms of the pathophysiology and can you give us a brief overview of what we believe occurs and what we think is happening to these patients mate I I wasn't expecting that question at all but here's something I haven't (laughs) prepared earlier Um, again I'll, I'll kind of do my best um so yeah so so we've discussed the difference between COVID-19 and, and SARS-CoV-2 and so um as as we understand at the moment the uh the pathophysiology so SARS-CoV-2 the, the virus binds with ACE2 receptors on the cell wall which are predominantly found in the lungs but also elsewhere in the body including for example the intestines um once it's attached to these ACE2 receptors the the receptor then internalizes into the cell and brings the virus with it allowing the virus to then take over the cell and replicate um, and then spread around the body. 
this triggers an, an innate immune response in which macrophages, um, a type of white blood cell, recognize the virus and start to attack it. And in doing so, they also release cytokines, which are small proteins that cause inflammation as part of that immune response. Um, and that's so that's why we kind of get the symptoms that one would expect with a respiratory virus such as this, um, such as a fever, a headache and a dry cough. Yeah, that's some interesting points there, Silas, as well, isn't there? You know, you mentioned it's a respiratory virus, but with these ACE2 receptors that we think it acts upon also being in the intestines as well. Do, do you think this is why we're seeing, especially in some patient groups, especially the elderly, and presenting with just solely gastric symptoms initially? Yeah, and that's something that's certainly come up in um, some of the reading that I've done around this. Um, I think it's, it's, it's kind of too early on to, to tell exactly how it's going to affect everyone. Um, and we'll kind of pick that data up as we look retrospectively at, at kind of larger case numbers, like you mentioned before. But um, I think there's going to certainly be some patients that are affected in um, in kind of non-respiratory ways. But I think the predominant um, problem is kind of accepted as it is a, a kind of predominantly respiratory virus. Um, but yeah, there's always going to be those kind of outliers, I guess. So yeah, so then as, as the kind of disease, you know, the majority of people will kind of get... A, recover from the disease by themselves in the early stages and and we'll talk a bit about um, decisions around hospital treatment and stuff later on but um, there's going to be those that um, in which their immune system can't deal with it and, and the disease is going to progress and and um, so in these patients although you know if this in initial immune response doesn't work um, they develop a kind of more generalized adaptive immune response um, which helps to kill the virus but can also worsen the inflammation and cause damage to other cells um, in the lungs this means alveolar damage and uh, fluid leakage which is then visible on chest imaging yeah thank you Silas. and i guess for clarity just to try and keep things simple and keep our listeners following us what you're describing at this stage is the infection is a pneumonia isn't it and I suppose what makes what makes things more complicated how does the virus progress after this point what what is making it so challenging to treat because we've we've all taken countless patients into hospital with pneumonia who have been treated what makes this more complex yeah so that's exactly right so so like you say it fulfills the the um the definition of a pneumonia it's a, it's a chest infection that's visible on imaging and um it, it, do, it does seem that covid19 pneumonias are presenting with a significant hypoxemia and whilst that can um, occur with other pneumonias if they become severe, um, it certainly seems to be quite a common um, kind of diagnostic criteria for COVID-19. And the physiology that, or the pathophysiology that's occurring there is one of ventilation perfusion mismatch. Um, and so, you know, in normal physiology, ventilation refers to air going in and out of the lungs, whilst perfusion refers to the blood flowing uh, around the lungs through the capillaries that surround the alveoli. And for normal gaseous exchange, oxygenation of the blood and clearance of CO2, we rely on ventilation, perfusion, matching. Um, and, you know, there's a few co kind of complex processes um, that occur physiologically to ensure that ventilation and perfusion is matched so that we are able to oxygenate our blood well. And, and that's fine. So what happens in the kind of early stages of this COVID-19 pneumonia is that areas of the lung that are becoming kind of f f uh, filled up with this infiltrate um, are becoming inadequately ventilated. So whilst they're getting some air, they're not getting as much as a normal patient, you know, someone would in normal physiology. And the result of that is that these inadequately ventilated alveoli that are still getting perfused with blood, because they have a slightly less amount of air in them, it means there's slightly less amount of oxygen available for the blood to pick up. 
And as a result, the blood is um, collecting less oxygen and is becoming hypoxemic. Uh, meanwhile, the well-ventilated areas of the lung, the well-ventilated alveoli, are unable to oxygenate the blood more than 100% clearly. And so the net effect, if you take healthy and unhealthy alveoli, is a kind of a net result of hypoxemia. Does that make sense? Thanks, Alice. Yeah, it does. And I guess for patients with this VT mismatch that you're you're describing, these alveoli that aren't quite functioning at their optimum state, are they going to be responsive to high flow oxygen? Are they patients who are going to we're going to see their oxygen saturations creep up? Yeah. So certainly in the early stages, we'd like to think that by increasing the amount of oxygen that people are breathing in and um, having air that is more saturated with oxygen, it means that these kind of inadequately ventilated alveoli will have a higher concentration of oxygen, even if there's a smaller amount of, of overall gas, um, which should make up for the um, poor ventilation and bring the oxygen saturations up. Um, the complexity arises when patients develop this shunt physiology. And a shunt basically refers to blood that's passing from the right to the left heart without picking up any oxygen at all. And this can certainly occur in the kind of later stages of a, of a pneumonia or an ARDS. Um, and, and occurs when um, areas of the lung, alveoli, are completely shut off from oxygenation at all. And that can be small areas of kind of individual al alveoli that have collapsed um, due to the uh, effects of the disease. Or it can be to, due to large areas of the lung that are kind of blocked off by mucus plugging. Um, and, and basically the result is that you get no ventilation at all to, that, to those kind of alveoli of the lung. Um, and yet blood still passes through. And so essentially what's happening is blood is passing from the right heart through um, lung that isn't being ventilated at all and straight back to the left heart, um, unable to pick up any oxygen, oxygen at all. And so the result of that is that um, regardless of how much oxygen a patient breathes in, even if it's 100% oxygen, that air is just not reaching the alveoli and is unable to get um, engage in, in gaseous exchange at all. So regardless of the amount of oxygen the patient's breathing in, the blood just won't be able to pick it up because it never has the chance to go near it. And so the result is a hypoxemia that is not responsive uh, to high flow oxygen. And we'll discuss a little bit more in the treatment section about how we can kind of address this physiology. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think, again, it sort of echoes what we're hearing anecdotally, isn't it, from our colleagues that they're putting patients on 15 litres of oxygen when they're finding them with really, really low saturations and a good SATs trace. And they can get their SATs up maybe to 80, 90%, but they just won't budge from that point. And I guess it's like you're saying, we've got blood that's passing through the alveoli that just aren't participating in gas exchange and therefore no matter how much oxygen you give you're not going to be able to stop that blood returning to the left side of the heart hypoxemic yeah i mean and, and that's the thing isn't it and like you say that i think that's where um a lot of this discussion around the complexity of trying to ventilate these patients in hospital is coming from and 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 essentially what's happening is as the disease progresses and worsens it leads to this concept of acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS, which hopefully most people would have heard of. And it's, it's essentially categorised by an acute deterioration in breathing with bilateral diffuse infiltrates on imaging and severe hypoxemia, um, which often, as we've kind of discussed, requires quite aggressive intervention to, to try and normalise those saturations. Um, and, and as we kind of mentioned, um, you know, some patients this will kind of, we can do that with kind of basic measures, whereas others really won't respond to that. Um, and hence, um, some patients with COVID-19 become critically unwell 
and require quite aggressive intervention and mechanical ventilatory support um, on intensive care. Yeah, we're, we're definitely hearing that it's, it's a disease process that doesn't affect everyone uniformly. For some patients, it's incredibly unpredictable how they deteriorate. And we had a couple of questions on Twitter, didn't we, about the cytokine storm syndrome. I was wondering if you could just speak about that a little bit. Yeah, again, I'll do my best. I think I think that's the, that's the um, really important point that you've made there is that um, pati- patients are responding differently and the, there's a whole kind of spectrum of different physiologies that's occurring within this, this, this kind of disease process. Um, and so, yeah, like you, you've identified, one of the um, things that is seeming to occur in a subset of patients um, is this cytokine storm syndrome. And kind of, yeah, briefly... Um, the process is one in which antigens um, trigger all white blood cells in response to the virus rather than triggering specific ones as happens in normal kind of immune responses um, and that that basically results in a, in a huge cascade of these cytokines uh, released from from the cells and cause a, a massive kind of over inflammation and vasodilation and subsequent distributive shock um, and the the other side of it is these this kind of um, overproduction of cytokines results in an overproduction of white blood cells um, which then begin to attack um, cells other than just the viruses and that can all add up to lead to kind of global organ damage and failure and so when patients reach this stage or if if and when patients reach this stage of the disease um, again the complexity of trying to manage this um, physiology um, just becomes you know even harder for for the guys to deal with uh, in hospital. Right, cool. So moving on, um, should we have a little look at the uh, possible case definitions um, and kind of tips for diagnosis of of COVID-19 in these patients? Yeah, definitely. And I think a really good place to start is with the Public Health England guidance, isn't it, which seems to be underpinning absolutely everything um, that all sort of the governing bodies and local ambulance services are publishing at the moment. And so when we look at their case definition for a COVID-19 sort of suspected case, they say either a patient with acute respiratory distress syndrome or having a high temperature, and that's defined as 37.8 degrees Celsius or higher, plus at least one of the following, which must be acute in onset. So that's a persistent cough, and that can be with or without sputum, hoarseness of the voice, nasal discharge, congestion, shortness of breath, sore throat, wheezing or sneezing. What's your thoughts on those, Silas? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And and it should be highlighted that is really the ambulance guidance from from Public Health England. But you know, we've discussed ARDS and um, highlighted that you know, really for a diagnosis of ARDS, um, it requires imaging um, to find that kind of bilateral infiltrates. And so it seems strange to me that their definition for for pre-hospital ambulance care includes a syndrome that can only be diagnosed diagnosed with chest imaging. Um, which leaves us kind of reliant on a high temperature um, associated with those other symptoms. But, you know, there's there's literature around this, the, the um, pyrexia in COVID-19. Um, and, you know, how useful is it really? Yeah, I think it's it's not very clear cut, is it? You know, we've, when we've searched for this, looked at a number of papers um, that have explored sort of rates of pyrexia in patients presenting with a confirmed or suspected COVID-19 and um, we found a number of these we've got two that we're going to link to the show notes that found actually less than half of patients at admission uh, they were pyrexic and actually even looking at the other symptoms that are there um, it's the Richardson et al paper April 2020 is the one I'm talking about at the moment um, but actually they found with an average age of 63 years at admission 
only 30% of patients in febrile and only 17.3% of the patients having respiratory rate greater than 24. So actually a number of those symptoms on there aren't applying to sort of all patients that we're seeing or certainly not the patients that they're seeing in that study there. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, so that's the, that's the study um, from from New York, isn't it? With you know, they they had a lot of, a lot of patients, five thousand seven hundred patients, and you know, we've got to be careful kind of extrapolating numbers. But but uh, New York is not too different from from the patients we're seeing. I don't imagine, and and I guess what it really highlights is that um, if we're only relying on ARDS or a high temperature, um, there's the possibility that we're going to miss a lot of cases. Um, and in addition to that, I think it's important to to kind of remain aware that signs and symptoms symptoms of a disease are generally attributed to it through a kind of retrospect retrospective um, analysis of our understanding of the disease. So you know, something like asthma or, or heart failure, we can be quite confident in, in how that presents because, as a medical community, we have a lot of experience in dealing with those diseases. But COVID nineteen is so new um, that as we deal with the cases we, we're constantly learning more and identifying new kind of symptoms that we didn't previously didn't think would be typical um such as anosmia you know the lack of smell um and and loss of sense of taste that, that some people are getting as well as like we've mentioned those kind of less common uh, gi symptoms um so i think it's you know it's useful to have these possible case definitions but um that clinical uh gestalt kind of thing or or just having a high uh kind of level of concern that the patients may have this is, is important as well um i think so um in, in addition to this what, what kind of other signs and symptoms um uh, are we seeing kind of classically in covid19 patients yeah so i think very much so it's, it's look, sort of looking at oxygen saturations is um, proving to be absolutely key with these patients not, not only in diagnosis but also in risk stratification you know we talked earlier a little bit about silent hypoxemia didn't we but actually that will show up on your pulse oximeter. Um, so with a good waveform, ideally trying to do it off your monitor so that you can sort of see the waveform and you can trust it rather than just the sort of finger probe where you're not sure how reliable that trace is and how reliable that number is. Um, but I think sort of oxygen saturations are, are going to be a really, really useful tool for us currently and also going forward. Um, and there's even some talk out there, isn't there, around sort of whether we can sort of give pulse oximeters to members of the public for them to sort of be able to monitor their condition and sort of help us to help them as such. Yeah, and I think one of the other considerations that's important there is when we're assessing these saturations, not just to, um, you know, do one set of OBS and take a, a sat- an oxygen saturation reading at rest, um, but also to, you know, patients that are normoxic, um, to, uh, you know, get another reading whilst they're kind of um, exercising or after they've exercised to so get someone to, you know, stand up and walk around the room and then see if their stats have dropped um, due to the exertion uh, might be a useful thing to do as well. Yeah, very much so. And I've heard even sort of a colleagues within the control room sort of getting patients to sort of walk around the room and just sort of see how breathless they are just in their voice, whether they can still complete sentences afterwards and just see what sort of they're their physiological reserve is there just when they're making a decision about whether to send an ambulance or not. Yeah, yeah, fair points. Um, what about this um, hyperglycemia that people have been discussing? Yeah, so there's been a little bit of literature published, hasn't there? Um, and Diabetes UK have also highlighted this around the increased risk of diabetes ketoacidosis and the hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state um, in diabetics with associated sort of COVID-19 symptoms. Um, the pathophysiology behind it not completely understood as far as I'm aware, but we do know that there's ACE2 receptors within the pancreas, um, 
and we wonder if there's sort of a degree of dysregulation occurring as the virus affects those cells. Yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And um, just highlights the importance of because they and, and like you say, diabetes have stated that that is, um, you know, that can occur in, in patients with established diabetes or those who haven't had it diagnosed. You know, so I think it's important just to ensure that we're checking blood sugar levels um, in in patients, even if they're presenting with something that we wouldn't normally um, have a concern for their for their sugar levels. Um, it's probably sensible, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And sort of seeing seeing that picture of you know, high blood sugars, positive tests for ketones, don't be sort of falsely reassured that that is why your diabetic patient um, is unwell. You know, it might be, that might be as a stress response to an underlying COVID infection. Um, good stuff. So should we move on to um, pre-hospital treatment then? Yeah, sounds good. Let's go for it. Cool. Before we really get into it, um, I think it's useful to discuss um, AGPs. Um, so are you able to give us a definition for what is an aerosol generating procedure? Um, in short, probably not, because actually nobody can agree on what is and what is not an AGP. I think before we discuss anything about aerosol generating procedures, it's really important that we acknowledge that actually a lot of the evidence is quite low level. It's just sort of case reports. There's certainly not any high level evidence around it. Um, and I think in sort of the current state, of where we are at the moment, any evidence that's out there is quite prone to bias, isn't it? Um, so, and I guess the other really important thing to say is that just because there's an absence of high quality evidence, it doesn't mean that there isn't a risk. We don't really know what the level of risk is um, around aerosol generating procedures, um, let alone what they are at the moment. Yeah, I mean, uh, not not a great start. <laughs> No, no, not at all. Um, so, so let's try and define what they are. So an aerosol, to, to create an aerosol, we're talking about droplets of liquid within the air. Um, and in order to create an aerosol, it requires air movement over the top um, of a liquid surface. Okay. And I suppose why we're a little bit concerned about aerosols is that these droplets are generally smaller. So generally about five microns in diameter. We think the average sort of COVID-19 Molecule is 10 microns in diameter. These are very, very small microns, small molecules, and they stay in the air for longer. And we suspect they penetrate the lungs a lot deeper. And so, again, sort of extrapolating that out, we think that they are higher risk to us as healthcare professionals. But the evidence, sort of high level evidence, isn't really there to support that. That is us extrapolating things out and having a strong level of suspicion. Um, fine. So, so that kind of um, gives us a better understanding of of what is an an aerosol. Um, but we've we've you know we've had different reports of what is an aerosol generation procedure, and and even some disagreement within the guidance. Um, how can we take that understanding and put it into our clinical practice? Yeah. So, I think there's there's some procedures that are, are fairly well agreed, fairly unanimously agreed that they are an aerosol generating procedure. So things like intubation are recognised an aerosol generating procedure as is sort of high flow nasal cannulas non-invasive ventilation uh, bag mouth bag valve mask ventilation is also agreed but i think the sort of really controversial area in the bit that everyone's talking about at the moment is whether closed chest compressions in isolation is an aerosol generating procedure and what we've seen is sort of public health england have said that it is not an aerosol generating procedure closed chest compression in isolation Whereas what we're seeing is that the Recess Council have quite strongly come out and said that closed chest compressions 
are an aerosol generating procedure. And we've seen pretty much all of the governing bodies, uh, healthcare, HCPC, the College of Paramedics, um, Royal College of Emergency Medicine, all come out and say that actually they believe that closed chest compressions do pose a risk to healthcare professionals as an aerosol generating procedure. Um, and that presents an issue for us around PPE and the level of PPE that we need to wear at these incidents. Yeah, and I was going to say it takes us on nicely to that kind of discussion, does it? I think um, personally, as as a as a professional with with that um, guidance uh, around AGP, uh, sorry, around the closed chest compressions being an AGP, um, and the like you say, the lack of knowledge um, of exactly what an AGP is, I think I think that's a fair um, kind of principle to stick to. Um, but obviously, if we are trying to put on a lot of PPE prior to doing closed chest compressions, um, if, you know, if we're first on scene at Kydec arrest, that could translate to uh, suboptimal patient care. Um, so what are some of the kind of tips and tricks that people have had that you've come across um, for ensuring good PPE whilst minimising um, detriment to patient care? Yeah, and I think you've, you've hit on the issue, haven't you, sort of in the first part of your question. You know, um, the concern from... PH England is that we're not talking about resuscitation of patients with COVID-19. We're talking about resuscitation of patients when COVID-19 is ongoing in the community. And the two things are different because actually our patient who doesn't have COVID-19 doesn't need this enhanced level of PPE, which, as you've said, takes some time to put on. And therefore, a concern from Public Health England is around delays in defibrillation, delays in chest compression. Uh, to patients when that might be what they need you know think of our our patient who's having an MI who goes into VF then actually what they need is they need some chest compressions and quick defibrillation and actually we might inadvertently delay that just through trying to put on enhanced PPE on the basis that we're treating everybody at the moment for COVID-19 suspected COVID-19 and so I guess to sort of answer the second half of your question I suppose first to just talk about our levels of PPE, it's generally now fairly unanimously widely acknowledged around level two and level three PPE. So level two PPE being a, a plastic apron for us in the ambulance, there is a single set of gloves, a fluid repellent mask, and plus or minus eye protection, depending on your risk assessment. And then level three PPE being the full Tyvek suit, uh, double gloving, wearing a fit tested FFP3 mask, and eye protection. So in terms of sort of tips and tricks, I think throughout the UK now, everybody is sort of advocating level two PPE for any patient contact at the moment. Um, in terms of tips and tricks around that, so me, my level two PPE, I double glove now whenever I put that on, just so I can then remove my outer set of gloves if necessary, and I've got a partially or a clean set of gloves underneath so if that's to get something out my pocket to get into my pouch with my dds on to use my radios i know that it's not a completely clean set of gloves um but i'm just kind of trying to reduce the amount of contamination i'm doing to kit that unfortunately i've got to keep on me for the rest of my shift and in terms of eye protection for me that's something now i'm just wearing as standards with my level two ppe um, again, that's for sort of droplet protection, isn't it? And, you know, you don't know when patients, patients don't tend to give you a great deal of warning when they're going to cough, when they're going to vomit. And so I think just having that protection in place is, is a sensible thing to do at the moment. In terms of level three PPE, this is, so we've discussed it, haven't we? It's difficult PPE to get into. 
And by definition of when you're going to be wearing it, you're going to be wearing it in a stressful situation uh, with quite a lot of time pressure to put it on. So we discussed a number of things, didn't we, um, that you can do to potentially sort of speed that process up, but make sure that it's still safe to do so. So level three PPE for any situations where there's going to potentially be an aerosol generating procedure. So we talk a lot about cardiac arrest, but this is probably also your patients who are unconscious, your patients who are fitting, and as there's a good chance you're going to be performing an AGP with these patients. And generally, if you're working on an ambulance, you get a bit of warning about attending these patients. And I think we can sort of take some inspiration from the fire service around their sort of attitude to PPE um, in sort of their most time-critical situation when they're entering an environment that's toxic to them and poses a risk to rescuers. And for me, you can sort of interpret that as their person's reported housewife and sort of how they don BA. So they don done their breathing apparatus en route to the job, um, or at least let me start that as they're leaving. Um, and I wonder if that's something that we can try and do a little bit with our PPE here. So whether we can put our feet through the base of our Tyvek suit as we get into the ambulance, um, or even en route, depending on what you're doing and how safe you deem that to be. You know, could you keep that PPE in the front of the ambulance with you so that when you arrive on scene, you've literally just got to pull your Tyvek suit up, zip it up, and then put a mask and some goggles on. And for me, that would be as quick as putting on level two PPE. That means as a rescuer, you're going into that situation already protected. And whilst your colleague who's driven to the incident can then put on their PPE themselves. Uh, if you're in a car, then you're going to fall into one of two camps, aren't you? You're either going to be first or not first to the incident. So if you're first or likely to be first, I think a lot of people are now saying that actually they're pulling up around the corner from the incident and donning PPE quickly before then approaching scene, just so that they're not in that sort of moral dilemma where they arrive on scene with a really, really frantic family, friends, bystanders trying to pull them into the, um, into the house or wherever they are. Um, and then they're not able to get their PPE on properly and then of course pose a risk to themselves and their colleagues. And then I guess if you're not first on scene, I, I suppose if you're not first on scene, the logical thing is um, you've done it as you arrive. If you're not first on scene, that sort of pressure initially has gone, hasn't it? And hopefully you'll be able to put some PPE on or even liaise with your colleagues who are there um, from sort of just outside the house as to what's needed. It might be that you don't need to done level three PPE because the job's not being as given and you can always downgrade. But I think it's it's really to sort of done level two PPE and then escalate it up level three. I think, you know, in theory, that sounds perfectly reasonable, but actually in practice, that's quite a difficult thing to do. Yeah, and that's that's the thing, isn't it? We kind of, um, as we gain more experience, we're learning more about it. And, you know, I've, I've attended a couple of incidents really where I've become, or I've, I've used level three and become a bit more comfortable putting it on. So actually, like you say, it's the putting a suit on that takes some time. Um, but with, with, you know, once you've done it a few times, you get a bit slicker at it. And and what I've found, you know, generally in, in our role um, as specialist paramedics, we arrive to incidents after other resources have got there. Um, and so we're kind of blessed with the um, time to um, don PPE whilst not really affecting patient care. Um, and so, so what I've found is my kind of approach now generally um, and it depends on the situation but I'll, I'll you know I'll take the bags and, and um, whatever PP I want into the house um, and do a kind of bit of a dynamic risk assessment um, from away from the patient um, but being able to speak to my colleagues and then you know in, a, in an instance such as, as a cardiac arrest I can then don my level 3 PPE um, out 
you know, in, in an area away from the patient so I can maintain communication with my colleagues. Um, but also that, that's given me in, in previous um, jobs, it's given me the ability to uh, speak with the patient's relatives and gain a bit of a collateral history at the same time. Um, so I think trying to combine that donning with, with other things that are important to, to do um, just minimises the impact of that um, whilst, whilst maintaining our own safety. Yeah, and uh, it's a crucial role, isn't it? You know, what we're now finding is that, you know, once you gear up into your, into your PPE, it's very, very difficult to speak to sort of family or bystanders or friends or whoever's there with the patient. Um, you know, multiple people. I think everyone I speak to echoes the fact it's really difficult to sort of convey any empathy or emotion once most of your face is covered up. So actually, you've, you've got an opportunity, haven't you? Even if you just initially go into the house with your P, with your level three PPE, but with your surgical fluid repellent mask on, you can have that really, really quick conversation with the family, and also just an explanation about one why your colleagues have turned up in all this kit, and also sort of, I suppose establish them sort of manage their expectations about when you're going to be able to come out and speak to them again yeah and that discussion with the family is really important and um you know whilst the public have been i think really good at, at kind of recognizing that we need to to wear pp and it's been quite well publicized i've certainly found um in cases recently there's some confusion from relatives around why we're wearing such a high level of ppe for someone that had no history of respiratory problems and has just had a collapse. Um, so like you say, ensuring good communication and, and explaining our reasoning for stuff can really go a long way. Yeah. Cool. Should we move on to, to patient uh, management then? Sorry, yeah, so the, the, the focus is really around um, pre-hospital critical care and, and on that basis we're going to discuss COVID-19 um, in the context predominantly of respiratory failure and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, there's other kind of uh, podcasts and, and resources, like we say, um, that have discussed the broader decision-making around uh, pre-hospital emergency care. Um, and we'll stick some links for, for useful stuff in the notes. So let's have a discussion around respiratory failure, shall we? Yeah, so my understanding is this falls into two types. Do you want to want to try and talk our listeners through it? Yeah, I think it's useful to get those definitions down early on, isn't it? So um, in, in terms of respiratory failure, there's really two types. Um, and type 1 relates to hypoxemic respiratory failure, so low oxygen saturations, whilst type 2 respiratory failure refers to hypercapnia, or high CO2, which is normally um, has an element of hypoxemia as well. Um, COVID-19 pneumonia, as we've discussed, normally leads to a type 1 respiratory failure, and so the predominant problem we're trying to address is, is a hypoxemia. However, it should be remembered that um, as the disease progresses and in certain pa patients with underlying kind of chronic lung problems such as COPD, there is a chance that they have an acute on chronic uh, type 2 respiratory failure and have a problem with oxygenation as well as uh, CO2 clearance. Um, I think the other, the, the other thing that's useful to kind of define is um, the use of FiO2 uh, because we see it a lot in guidance but it's not something that's generally discussed uh, in, in ambulance care I don't think. Um, and so the FiO2 uh, refers to the amount of oxygen present in a mixture of gases um, and is expressed as a fraction so it's the fraction of inspired oxygen. Um, for example at sea level we know there's 21% oxygen um, in, in air and therefore the FiO2 um, at sea level would be 0 0.21. Um, in, in critical care, what we're really focusing on, and, and in terms of dealing with type 1 respiratory failure, is, is addressing the hypoxemia 
by increasing the FiO2 uh, and so increasing the percentage of oxygen in a mixture of gases um, which we've got different uh, a variety of methods to do um, and that obviously increases the amount of oxygen available for gases exchange in the alveoli hopefully addressing the problem um, and finally kind of confusingly although it is a fraction um, it's generally expressed as a percentage um, and, and so that kind of terminology is, is often used but that's just because it's easier to discuss really um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So we've got patients who are generally severely hypoxic, but from what you're saying, not retaining carbon dioxide. So we've got a number of devices, haven't we, based on ambulance and also a couple of extra ones available to us in the enhanced care teams. Can you talk us through what they are and when we use them, essentially? Yeah, absolutely. So, and and it's, what we're really trying to do is follow those principles given to us by J.R. Kalk and, and by the British Thoracic Society of escalating the FiO2 uh, in response to patients' hypoxemia. And we're trying to reach target saturations of 94 to 98% in, in patients without underlying lung disease, um, but trying to minimise hyperoxia, um, because that is known to be, to be bad as well. Um, and I think the other benefit of titrating up through oxygen devices is that we can see how severe a patient's respiratory failure is. Because, you know, someone that has... Um, we can achieve SATs of 95%, with nasal cannulae is clearly less unwell than someone that requires um, a non-rebreather mask or CPAP to achieve the same result. And so it's useful to escalate through these devices as well as kind of monitoring um, patients' response to, to continue to ascertain how unwell they are or are not. Um, and so, yeah, the devices that we have, um, the kind of common devices people use start with nasal cannulae. And so these are, um, you know, prongs that go in each nostril and can deliver a flow rate of oxygen normally up to five litres per minute. Um, and this is estimated to deliver, to deliver a fraction of inspired oxygen of around 40%. Um, so obviously higher than the 21% of, of normal air. Um, as we move through our kind of devices, we, we have Venturi masks. And um, these are common in hospital and in ambulance care um, and come in a variety of sizes. Um, so in our service, we only have a couple of sizes. However, there are five uh, in total. And they, they, these are designed using different um, flow rates of, of litres per minute to achieve a differing fraction of inspired oxygen between about 24% and around 60%. So if we've escalated up to our um, highest FiO2 using, using a Venturi mask and the patient remains hypoxemic, the next step is to use a non-rebreather mask um, sometimes called a high flow mask and um, these are estimated although, although the aim is to deliver as much oxygen as possible um, it's not a closed circuit and therefore 100% oxygen is not going to be possible however it's estimated that these masks deliver kind of 80% um, or a little bit more um, if used properly um, and in terms of using the devices properly I think it's important to um, take the time to ensure that we're not just kind of slapping an oxygen mask on and checking the numbers um, but to, to kind of take the time to be careful in the fact that we're fitting the mask well to the patient's face, kind of tightening the elastic um, so we achieve a good seal um, and just maximise uh, the amount of or the concentration of oxygen that the patient's breathing in um, so that we're not unnecessarily escalating to, to more advanced interventions. Perfect. Thanks, Silas. So working for a number of masks there to deliver essentially an increasing amount of oxygen. We've got as far as our non-rebreathe mask, we're delivering our 15 litres of oxygen to our patient and they're still severely hypoxic. 
what what can be done beyond those patients in the pre beyond that for patients in the pre-hospital setting yeah so so you know we we carry um cpap as do a lot of enhanced care teams so that's continuous positive airway pressure and um there's been a publication quite a nice publication from nhs england last month um, in which they state that cpap is the preferred method of non-invasive ventilatory support in the management of the hypoxemic covid19 patient um, and within that guidance, they have a nice little traffic light system around patients that would uh, potentially benefit from CPAP, um, which I think is a useful one to follow. Um, so firstly, you know, if, if we're escalating through these um, oxygenation devices and they are not being effective, so pa- patients are remaining hypoxemic despite um, escalating our intervention, I think it's important to have in the back of our minds the potential need for enhanced care. Um, and so an early call for enhanced care support, either from, uh, you know, critical pa- para- critical care paramedics such as ourselves or from local air ambulance or, or basics kind of services um, is definitely beneficial. And um, in terms of using the CPAP within this NHS England guidance, um, the category we're really looking at is that yellow um, category, which um, they define the clinical status um, of the patient as a respirate over 20 with saturations of less than 94% on an FiO2 of at least 40%. Um, And so in these patients, the suggested action is to start 15 litres per minute via a non-rebreathe mask, um, which, you know, if you haven't already, that's using the high flow as we discussed. Um, And then if you have the availabilities um, to, to give CPAP, um, they recommend to trial CPAP with an initial pressure of 10 centimetres of water and an FiO2 of 60% if you can adjust that. Um, if the patient is not responsive to this or, or re- requires kind of escalation of uh, this intervention, they recommend going up to 12 to 15 centimetres of water and titrating the FiO2 up to as close to 100% as possible. Um, clearly, if this isn't um, sufficient to to address the hypoxemia these patients are going to be uh, definitely be candidates for invasive ventilation Um, and this is something that will obviously have to be carried out in hospital perfect thank you and then just just for our listeners as well can you just explain a little bit about what CPAP is doing what is sort of the added benefits that it gives us yeah, absolutely. So so essentially it goes back to what we we're discussing in the pathophysiology section about VQ mismatch and this shunt physiology. And, and as we've discussed, escalating through um, our, oxygen, our oxygen masks to increase the FiO2 should hopefully address some of that um, poorly ventilated uh, alveoli, you know, the VQ mismatch. Um, however, in those patients with a shunt physiology, that's not going to be effective. And so CPAP kind of does what it says on the tin. It's a continuous positive airway pressure. And by adding this kind of positive pressure to the whole respiratory cycle, it means at the end of exhalation, the patients are, there's kind of a a positive pressure is maintained at the end of that cycle. And that has the benefit of increasing the, what's called the functional residual capacity. Um, And it means it kind of, um, it, it stents some of the alveoli open slightly um, that that were previously collapsed, and if you imagine, uh, you know, a balloon is much easier to inflate if it's partially inflated already than if it's completely collapsed. And the same physiology occurs in our alveoli. So by maintaining some pressure at the end of the expiratory cycle, it means that some of the more diseased alveoli are stented open slightly, and so on the next breath they open much easier. 
and and this kind of dynamic process continues and so CPAP is said to recruit um, collapsed alveoli thereby increasing the surface area and decreasing that shunt physiology um, allowing for better gaseous exchange of more blood um, and so and, and on top of that with a lot of different you know there's there's different types of CPAP kind of machines um, but in most you can titrate the FiO2 up and down as well and, and so in addition to increasing the FiO2 it has that benefit of opening up some of the collapsed alveoli and improving um, surface area available for gaseous exchange. Thank you thank you that's great and any tips for either crews that are requesting sort of a clinician to come in the system with CPAP or even for clinicians who are administering CPAP have you got any tips for the use of it yeah exactly so the the other thing that the um, guidance from NHS England um, highlights is that of um, being aware of patient induced lung injury and of the anxiety um, associated with CPAP um, so so agents they recommend to address this is titrating small amounts of midazolam or, or similar to kind of agents um, to help with the anxiety associated with um, what, what is quite an invasive procedure in terms of, you know, quite stressful putting that mask over patients. Um, and they also advocate using kind of judicious use of opiates um, to reduce the sensation of breathlessness and to limit the high tidal volumes um, that patients might be taking in, in kind of severe hypoxic um, respiratory failure. Um, and, and that's on the basis that, you know, some studies have found that patients when they're kind of severely breathless and hypoxemic, they take huge tidal volumes and, and with a quite a high respiratory rate, which actually leads to a patient-induced lung injury, um, which worsens the progression of the disease. Um, so yeah, kind of really judicious titration of, of um, sedation, uh, sedative drugs and of opiates can be beneficial um, in, in using CPAP. Thank you. So we've talked about sort of increasing FiO2 to maximal levels. We've talked a little bit about non-invasive ventilation. The other thing we've seen a lot of recently is around proning these patients. Can you talk us a little bit about why that might work for this patient group? Uh, I can certainly try. Um, like you say, it's, it's something that's been discussed on Twitter, hasn't it? And um, it's it's gained popularity on social media, which has led to the inevitable question of whether it's appropriate uh, in pre-hospital care. Um, so I've done a bit of reading around. It's not something I knew a lot about before um, and still probably don't know a lot about now, to be honest. But... Um, the, the concept of proning really relates to um, West's zones of the lung, um, which is based on a paper by West and colleagues in 1962. And that really explains the differences in alveolar versus kind of perfusion pressures in the different areas of the lung. Um, and, it, you know, like I say, it's not something I know a lot about. Um, but essentially, depending on our position, um, as uh, there's going to be different pressures of ventilation and different pressures of perfusion in the different areas of the lung. And so the reason um, that uh, prone, uh, prone positioning has come around is to kind of optimise that ventilation and perfusion um, in patients that really need support in the area. Um, so lying on your back, um, as, as we have most patients, is, is really not optimal for ventilation. Um, and that's because the weight of the ventral lung, as in the, the anterior part of the lungs, and the heart and the abdominal viscera all kind of push up and compress on the posterior, the, the dorsal parts of the lung, um, and compress those down and mean that they don't, um, in, they don't get ventilated too well. And this is exacerbated in diseases such as COVID-19, um, where inflammation and pulmonary edema contributes to the weight of the anterior lung and just worsens the compression of the posterior parts of the lung. Um, and so this leads to 
a situation in which the um, anterior, the, the ventral lung, is ventilated quite well, but not perfused too well. And the posterior lung, the dorsal lung, um, is is not ventilated too well because it's compressed and uh, has areas of atelectasis or alveolar collapse um, whilst perfusion is maintained. Um, so the idea of proning a patient is, is one that's quite popular in, in ITU care and um, it involves laying the patient on their front or uh, kind of as close to on their front as possible. And by doing this, you kind of reverse that physiology, take away some of the weight that's pressing on the dorsal aspects of the lung and remove that um, splinting of the diaphragm, um, which has been shown to improve oxygenation or ventilation of patients and address the hypoxemia. Um, so is any of this sort of theoretically possible in pre-hospital care? Is there any sort of tools out there that can help pre-hospital clinicians make a decision about this or is this purely got a role in intensive care um yeah fine. So i think that's the kind of main question for, for our role isn't it um and so i think one thing to be aware of is that proning patients in itu is, is a fairly complex procedure it involves a lot of clinicians um and kind of carefully rolling a patient to ensure we're not affecting iv lines and airways and, and ventilator tubing um however the other consideration is that proning for patients or, or certainly awake proning is only recommended in those that are hemodynamically stable and I've had a look around and you know awake proning is something that's been um, shared a lot on social media and and from what we can see it's been beneficial for patients um, and having a read around there's actually been a publication from the intensive care society um, specifically around awake proning in COVID-19 um, which I think is a useful uh, guidance to, to look at in, in terms of addressing this question. Um, so the flow diagram from the Intensive Care Society uh, starts with um, the, the kind of patient uh, status. So on patients with an, an FiO2 of more than 28%, all those requiring basic respiratory support to achieve SATs of uh, uh, 92 to 96% um, and suspected COVID-19, um, they recommend consideration of prone positioning. Um, so to consider prone position, uh, the patient has to be able to communicate and cooperate with the procedure and rotate to their front and adjust their own position independently. Um, and in addition to that, they must have no anticipated airway issues. Um, so if the patient meets all of those criteria, um, they recommend prone positioning, but there are some absolute contraindications to that. And their contraindications are respiratory distress, uh, defined as a respirator of over 35, or uh, hypercapnia, a PaCO2 of more than 6.5, um, or things such as accessory muscle use, um, an immediate need for intubation, hemodynamic instability, defined as a systolic blood pressure less than 90, um, or arrhythmia, um, agitated or altered mental status, and then other considerations such as spinal injury or, or recent abdominal problems. And so if we take that guidance in the context of pre-hospital care, um, I think the majority of the patients that we're um, dealing, you know, the, the majority of the COVID-19 patients that we're dealing with are going to be um, hypoxemic with an element of respiratory distress, um, hence the call for an ambulance, and are going to be requiring intervention in terms of oxygenation or airway management. And so I think very few patients that we see will meet the criteria for awake proning. Um, in addition to that, the this guidance is is designed for intensive care and we've got to remember that we're a, a, a you know we're a transport critical care service and so other considerations around safety of transport um are there as well so i think 
you know, even if we do have that patient in which we decide that awake proning is beneficial, um, there has to be a consideration around how we're going to ensure the patient is safe, um, how we're going to use seat belts and a six-point harness and transport that patient with ongoing monitoring. Um, and, you know, taking all of that, I think it's unlikely we're going to see patients who meet all these criteria and therefore are safe um, and likely to benefit from awake proning. Um, so, so it's certainly not something I've been doing in my practice. Um, I think the the other thing is that you know patients that are really unwell with with respiratory failure, you know, such as we see in asthmatics and, and patients with a COPD exacerbation, they tend to find a position of comfort for themselves. Um, normally, sitting bolt upright or in that kind of tripod position. Um, and there's a paper um, from 2006 um, in which they studied 16 patients with ARDS, and they actually found that. Um, in patients sitting up, there were physiological benefits over lying flat on their back, um, and so it, it, you know, it might not be as good as awake proning, but there's certainly a benefit, a likely benefit of sitting patients up. And for us, that means we can continue to monitor their airway and their breathing, and and provide interventions um, as we need to. Thank you, Silas. So say a fairly comprehensive sort of summary of any respiratory support that we can provide pre-hospitally. Um, any other considerations uh, for these patients in terms of system support? Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of things worth discussing. Um, the, one is fluids, um, and you know there's there's some question in in these kind of respiratory failure patients over whether they need rehydration. Um, obviously, you can get a lot of insensible losses from a high respiratory rate, um, and the the um, evidence or guidance on whether fluid is appropriate in ARDS um, is kind of dependent on the subtype of ARDS and and you know what's going on with the patient and the bottom line is we, we really don't know exactly the type of ARDS that the patient will have um, I think the the concern with fluid management is that you know essentially the pneumonia or and the pulmonary edema associated with COVID-19 is um, fluid in the wrong place in the lungs and so logically then if we're adding more fluid into the system there's a chance that we're going to exacerbate this inflammation and worsen the patient's um, status so the general approach for these patients is to maintain um, a normal or low fluid balance which means not adding in un unnecessary fluids um, the the um, caveat there is that if patients are um, hypervolemic you know they have a history of DMV or they've got evidence such as hypotension um, that they are hypovolemic then administering fluid to target a normal or close to normal blood pressure is probably appropriate and that you know that kind of fits nicely within JRCALC guidelines around fluid management um, for hypovolemia um, so I think it's important to follow that. Um, the other point that's worth discussing is around the administration of steroids. Um, so there's been some discussion a, a, around whether steroids are beneficial um, for COVID-19. Um, and I think in our practice, it's sensible, again, to stick to JRCALC guidelines, um, but just have that in the back of our mind around when it might be beneficial. Um, and so JRCALC recommends um, hydrocortisone administration for an acute severe asthma. Um, and clearly in, in patients with a background history of asthma that present with an acute severe episode, um, it's going to be, they're going to fulfill the criteria for a possible COVID-19 um, and so administration of, of hydrocortisone in, in that um, patient group is beneficial and I think the the other thing to remember and one that is probably not as um, well remembered as, as asthma is the avoidance or treatment of a, an, an adrenal crisis um, 
And this is something that's been highlighted by the European Society of Endocrinology, um, who have released some guidance last month around treatment of adrenal crisis in COVID-19. Um, and their advice uh, falls in line with JRCalc, or you know, vice versa. Um, and they refer to primary, secondary and tertiary adrenal insufficiencies, um, primary being Addison's disease or congenital adrenal hyperplasia, secondary being things such as hypothalamic or uh, pituitary disease, and um, importantly, I think, the tertiary adrenal insufficiency refers to patients that take more than five milligrams of prednisolone or equivalent per day um, for more than four weeks. Um, who are then defined as kind of chronic steroid users. And in these patients that have COVID-19, because of the risk of their um, immune system and their, their, their physiology around that kind of becoming out of control, um, steroids is likely to be beneficial in avoiding a subsequent adrenal crisis and worsening their condition. Um, so in these patients, JLCalc and the European Society of Endocrinology recommend 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone either IM or as an IV injection um, and I think that's something that's important to do but also to inform the ED um, uh, when you hand over the patient um, because in hospital they, they'll then require ongoing administration of steroids for the um, duration of the disease process. Yeah, it all makes sense. So it sounds very much like the hydrocortisone guideline pre-hospitally essentially for us remains unchanged if your patient fulfills it um, don't delay in administering those steroids. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, fair and a lot quicker than the way I explained it. Um, but yeah, I think <laughs> I think that's the main point, isn't it? I think uh, adrenal crisis is something that is, you know, maybe not at the forefront of people's minds, but I think is, you know, it, it's established that patients with adrenal insufficiency are at increased risk of a severe uh, response if they catch COVID nineteen. Um, and I think it's important to have that in the back of our minds that it's something we can do to to minimise that um, for patients. So the last section then is around out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and I think it's useful to discuss um, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in the context of COVID-19 as well as potentially due to COVID-19 um, and in this section we won't look at um, end-of-life care um, which is a whole separate discussion um, but we'll concentrate specifically on resuscitation um, where appropriate. Is is that fair? Yeah, we'll try and try and keep it fairly narrow to resuscitation. I think sort of end-of-life care in these patients is a, is a whole new conversation, isn't it? something that potentially needs to be picked up another time but yeah we'll try and talk about sort of the the adaptations that you need to make um, in the current climate yeah perfect um so you've you've mentioned before the differing in opinion around uh, b between kind of recess council and other other guidance um, and phe around ppe um so i wonder you know we've we've, we've touched on ppe and cardiac arrest but um you know what is the bottom line approach with with ppe in in, in these patients so I think the unanimous agreement is that when you're doing ALS, you need to be in level three PPE, that closed chest compression um, in the view of Public Health England in isolation um, is not an aerosol generating procedure. So I think to summarise, if you're within two metres of that patient whilst ALS is ongoing, you need to be in level three PPE and you need to essentially assume that every resource that you go to, that person has. COVID-19 and wear your full PPE. Um, I guess the concern from PHE, like we said earlier, is around delays in either defibrillation or starting chest compressions in a patient who doesn't have COVID-19. Um, and it's just worth acknowledging that the Recess Council sort of highlights actually that there's, um, there is potentially a role for attaching the defib pads 
checking the rhythm and if they're in a shockable rhythm delivering three shocks even if that's whilst you're in level two PPE before then leaving the room entering level three PPE and then starting your resuscitation of that patient how that works in practice I, I, I don't know I don't know if you could if you'd reasonably be able to turn up at someone's house deliver three shocks and then leave the house today, put on some more PPE. I don't know how that would work. And I don't know quite how the logistics would be around that. I don't know what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, I think it's a difficult one, isn't it? I've, personally, I've not been in that situation um, first on the scene at a cardiac arrest, but I think it's it's, it's going to be a dynamic assessment. Um, and I think it's important to be aware of the advised PPE and your own level of risk, um, as well as kind of weighing that up against what is, what is um, necessary for the patient. Um, I guess the other consideration is, you know, a, a lot of these cardiac arrests that we attend have bystander CPR and I guess it's safe to assume then that if someone is providing bystander CPR um, their level of exposure is established so um, asking someone to continue providing that CPR whilst you don PPE um, is probably appropriate. Yeah and I think as we spoke about earlier you know there's ways to really really refine this process and I think it's something you need to be really happy with you know you need to be really happy with your own PPE and be quite drilled in how you're going to get it on quickly um, and have sort of almost a conversation with you if you're with a crewmate or if you're on your own have a plan in place at the start of your shift as to what you're going to do if you get a cardiac arrest so that you're not just sort of trying to wing it from the outset you've got a plan as to what PPE you're going to go in with and how you're going to get that on as quickly as possible I think the only other thing to say about the PHE guidance is it does sort of say, say at the bottom that every situation is different and clinicians need to make a dynamic risk assessment. And I think the majority of ambulance trusts also echo that guidance as well. So no, I don't think anybody's being sort of punished or anything for, for wearing a higher level of PPE. So I think, I think if people are going want to wear level three PPE, which is my practice myself, and um, you know there's no comeback for that that is my dynamic risk assessment i guess yeah i think that's that's a fair point isn't it um so the other thing that the, the recess council state is around um confirming cardiac arrest and, and again applying a bit of sensible um approach to that um, and so they advocate not not listening or feeling for breathing um because clearly that would increase your risk of uh, infection but using other methods to confirm cardiac arrest like pulse checks or end tidal co2 if you're using that for monitoring um so should we have a bit of a chat about airway then? What What is the guidance around airway management and how, how how might we adapt that in the context of these cardiac arrests? Yeah, so I think it's, it's very much about finessing what we already do, really, rather than anything radically different to normal. Say, trying to avoid uh, bad mask ventilation if possible, and trying to get a superglottic airway, which I know most ambulance services in the health carrying and can be used by pretty much any clinicians within the ambulance service trying to get a superglottic airway in as soon as possible because you've then got pretty much a closed circuit on that and you're then essentially you've negated any AGP going into the into the sort of room um, I guess there's also thoughts about who manages that airway um, you know if it's someone's first time that they've ever inserted a superglottic device this probably isn't the time for them to be learning how to do it. Um, you know, a lot of the guidance echoes that management should be by the most experienced, the most competent uh, clinician. And then there's also sort of evidence around or advice around a lower threshold 
and endocrine intubation. And there's a bit of a risk benefit um, decision to be made here. We know that intubation is an AGP. We know that you're going to have to get close to the airway to do that. But again, if you're doing closed chest compressions and you can hear an air leak around the edge of that eye gel, or you know you can just feel that from ventilating, um, you'll be off-gassing aerosol into the environment that you're in. So actually, it's probably better to put an ET tube down into that patient. Yeah, and I think the, um, the other kind of consideration there is if, if the patient's predominant cause of air arrest is ARDS, um, it's theoretical to think they might have quite high airway pressures, um, which would, again, increase their risk of an eye gel leak, causing not only an AGP but, but suboptimal ventilation. Um, and so it's certainly my practice to, to have a lower threshold for, for intubation. And I think we know there's a higher risk um, of an AGP doing it. And so uh, in my practice, I've adapted slightly um, to actually pause chest compressions whilst passing, passing the tube. Um, and, you know, that it requires a bit of planning. So clearly doing a kit dump, setting up your kit and, and putting the, you know positioning the patient optimally um, prior to attempting to intubate. Um, and then when it comes to the... Um, passing the the tube the the actual process of intubation um, I try and well so I ask the the rescuer to pause chest compressions um, whilst I intubate um, to minimize my exposure to AGP um, and although that's detrimental to the patient um, I try and minimize the effect of the patient by coupling that with something like a pulse check um, so that we're at least using the time off the chest appropriately um, and kind of mi minimizing the detriment to the patient um, is, is that something you've been considering? Yeah, I think, you know, overall, it's, our practice isn't grossly different to normal, is it? You know, if you had a leak in eye gel six months ago, you would intubate that patient. And I think that's exactly what we're doing now. We've just got a, sort of more enhanced awareness of it. Um, I think, obviously, stopping chest compressions to intubate um, is something that we're told never, never to do. But actually, I think in the current climate, that is probably something that is sensible to do, Ellie, as you said, as long as you're being pragmatic about minimising that pause as much as possible. Yeah, exactly. And like, like I say, that's something in my practice, but it's something that everyone needs to consider on a kind of risk-benefit in, in terms of the patient they're dealing with um, at the time. Um, one of the other questions around airway management, then, is something that came up on Twitter a few times. Um, and I know in our service, we use a Laerdal suction unit. Um, as do a lot of services. So there's been some questions around um, the use of the LSU um, and some concerns over whether using this electrical um, aspiration device um, increases the risk of generating an aerosol um, out of the kind of the, the uh, ventilation port of the device. Um, I know we kind of looked into that. Yeah, so this relates to the portable suction units, doesn't it? And on the back, they have a little port that essentially allows them to off-gas um, or send out fluids when they become overfilled. And there was a bit of a concern about whether that was off-gassing um, aerosols into the environment. We've had a little conversation with Laird, or haven't we? And we've been sort of reassured that there's a viral filter um, that is, I think, 99.9995% effective. So is as good as an HME filter, essentially, was what we worked it out to be, didn't we? Um, for filtering out COVID particles. And so we're told you shouldn't need to make any sort of adjustments or adaptations to your suction unit, which should be fine. Yeah, cool. So that is encouraging um, and answers that question. Um, in terms of circulation then, um, 
I guess the the main discussion we, we've kind of discussed closed chest compressions and um, our approach to that. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of lowering the threshold for use of an automated compression decompression device such as the Lucas or the Autopulse? Um, I know that you know I've, I've done a couple of um, resuscitations since since this has kind of kicked off, um, and wearing that level three PPE is hot and then something energetic such as closed chest compressions really exacerbates that kind of um, energy production and, and kind of heat loss uh, or you know getting hot and sweaty essentially um, and I think can affect people's fatigue and ability and then decision making levels um, what do you think about having a lower threshold for automated CPR um, in in the context of these cases yeah I completely agree with you having done a couple of these in, in level three PPE it gets really really hot really quickly and you know the ones that I've done haven't been on particularly hot days either um, so I think sort of even a, a recess that's not particularly protracted you know people are likely to lose significant amounts of fluid over their shift and obviously crews will go on from here to do other jobs throughout the day so I think yeah a really low threshold um, for your automated chest compression devices whatever they be that you're using um, and it allows us to get clinicians out of the room doesn't it and to then go and support the family as well um, you know, it allows us to get clinicians out of this, if, if appropriate, that full level three PPE um, and make a sort of risk assessment about what level of PPE they need to wear um, when speaking to the family and just sort of explain what's going on. Also, gain like that collateral history that we were talking about earlier and sort of understanding about what level of care that patient is going for. Yeah, I think they're all, all um, sensible points to discuss, aren't they? So. Um, fine. So that's the, that's kind of discussion around um, resuscitation intra arrest. Um, any adaptions to practice for if we hopefully um, achieve a return of spontaneous circulation? Yeah. So I think in terms of significant adaptations, um, not huge, but actually it's around just having a structured approach of following through sort of post rust exactly like as you do normally. But I think just checking a couple of extra things along the way and doing couple of things slightly differently just to finesse it say thinking about the airway just once you've achieved us just ensuring that the et tube cuffs appropriately inflated the tubes properly tied and um, and if you're doing any sort of circuit disconnects whether that be changing onto a ventilator or changing back onto the um bag valve mask and making sure that you're clamping the tube either with the mcgills or with spencer wells and if you're using spencer wells just make sure there's some gauze between them and the tube so you don't damage the tube but this just stops any de-recruitment um, in the lungs but also again stops you off gassing into the environment that you're in um, and potentially putting rescuers at risk um, in terms of breathing stuff i guess um so sort of linking on from your airway stuff again checking all the circuit connections are really really tight um, and i've even heard a sort of colleague in hospital taping around sort of the joints in your circuit and you know i'm sure we've all had patients where you've been moving them and you've got that circuit disconnect and again there's that risk that they off gas into the environment that you're in yeah and i think that's that's the the kind of approach isn't it just to you know like you say just have a kind of high or you know a kind of sensible approach to to um checking your equipment and making sure there's not going to be any kind of failures and and uh increasing the risk for an agp um whilst we're extricating and moving the patient um i think the other stuff within within breathing then is um like we've discussed, if it's a predominant ARDS kind of respiratory cause for their cardiac arrest, 
um, and we achieve a ROSC, there's going to be potential for high airway pressures and um, potentially some ventilation dysynchrony um, for the patient with, with their kind of struggling respiratory failure. Um, and so these patients may well benefit from, from sedation and or paralysis, um, depending on what, what your service and skill set can provide. Um, in terms of circulation, I don't think there's anything hugely unchanged. Um, just using fluids and inotropic support um, as per our normal guidance. Um, and obviously addressing um, analgesic and sedation needs um, as required in the post rosc period. Um, I think the other consideration then is around conveyance, isn't it? So um, Public Health England has stated that uh, a possible COVID-19, you know, patients that are meeting that possible case definition are not for, for conveyance by air ambulance. And so the majority of these patients are going to be conveyed by land. Um, and when doing that, I think it's <coughs> sensible to take the time um, to ensure that the vehicle is prepared for transport in a way that minimises, again, AGP um, contamination. Um, and so the, the guidance from Public Health England um, uh, says th things such as ensuring the bulkhead is sealed, um, <coughs> equipment that we might not use. Um, bags that are normally kind of left out, secured away in cupboards, um, and ensuring that the DCA kind of the ventilation um, is is established prior to loading the patient um, uh, to the you know minimise uh, infection. And I think you know it, it depends on the amount of people at the, at the job, doesn't it? But I think it's probably sensible um, if we achieve a ROSC that appears to be stable, um, taking the time then to ask one of the team members to um, to be tasked specifically with preparing the ambulance for transport. Um, because then we can ensure that we're uh, minimising our own risk whilst not affecting our patient care. Um, and so when we when we then move the patient onto the ambulance, it's prepared for a safe kind of conveyance to hospital. Fine, so last thing to discuss then. Um, clearly, as ambulance staff, it is within our skill set to recognise um, when resuscitation is ineffective and declare uh, recognition of life extinct. Um, in this uh, situation um, again obviously we need to be careful around PPE um, and our discussions with the family um, so how has guidance kind of changed or been adapted um, with, with relation to the recognition of life extinct in out-of-hospital care? So I think one of the important things to say is actually your JR Calc or certainly as far as I'm aware trust guidance around role decisions hasn't actually changed um, we've sort of emphasised so the points that we've made in the past around having a good consideration about the appropriateness of starting resuscitation, but certainly your role criteria hasn't changed. So patients who arrest in front of you, for example, if they fulfil criteria before for resuscitation will be exactly the same as they are now. Um, your role criteria is unchanged. I think the key thing is around thinking about whether resuscitation is appropriate for this patient and this isn't unique to COVID-19 I think this is something we're in the ambulance service that we need to get better at in the future anyway but think about whether this patient is appropriate for resuscitation and potentially starting basic life support whilst you share that decision with somebody else whether that be phoning your on-call consultant your critical care desk your clinical support desk whatever sort of way in which they exist within your service you know we've talked about um, PPE, having we in cardiac arrest, having sought some clarification for confirming role level two PPE is appropriate. However, I'm not quite sure when there would be a situation that you would just be in level two PPE um, to confirm role. Maybe if you had a patient with notes in the CAD that confirmed they were obviously deceased, but otherwise, I think 
level three PPE is going to be the default for these patients. Um, and I had a little look on the internet, just trying to find around at what point an environment is safe after an AGP has occurred. Um, and I couldn't find any evidence sort of to, to say what that time frame was. Say, if there's been a resuscitation occurring in that room, I don't know at what point that room then becomes a room safe for level two PPE where you can de-escalate from level three PPE. I don't know if that's anything that you've seen at all. No, I haven't. And I think it's an important thing to be to be aware of, isn't it? Just just because we're not um, conducting aerosol generating procedures does not mean that aerosols have not been generated and aren't still present. Um, so I think it's, it's sensible not to, you know, like you say, if, if you're wearing level three PPE as part of the resuscitation and on and go on to recognise that life um, life extinct, um, it's sensible not to doff your level three, but to keep that on. Um, I think the the procedure then um, is that the, it's kind of twofold, isn't it? One part is um, kind of continuing your care for the relatives that are there um, and being very aware of of their perception of what's happening, um, but also minimising um, contamination of the ambulance and of our kit. Um, and so, um, I don't know what your practice has been, but in in the cases that I've attended recently, um, once we recognise uh, life extinct. Um, someone in a lower level of PPE will um, speak to the family and ensure that they understand what has happened. Um, meanwhile, those of us still in level three have been taking all of our kit out of the room and putting it somewhere out of the family's um, eyesight, you know, but not in the ambulance, um, uh, allowing that person time with their loved one um, and for communication around the kind of next stages and, and what's important to the relatives. Um, in terms of cleaning kit then, um, what I've done is kind of set up little stations of a um, station of contaminated or potentially ca contaminated kit um, with level three personnel, um, which is then cleaned and put in a place of clean equipment. Um, and then someone in level two or no PPE if it's outside can move that clean equipment back into the ambulance. Um, and that just kind of minimizes cross-contamination from, from the job of the case that you're on. Um, into the back of the ambulance and and on and on to other patients. Um, I don't know what what are you doing in your practice? Yeah, I think sort of similar similar sort of stuff. You know, minimal kit contamination as possible, minimum contamination of clinicians. You know, we talked about earlier. You know, if around minimum number of clinicians with the patient, if appropriate. So if you've got an indication that this patient, you know, is is beyond help, you know, you're responding to this patient as a category three call. They're reported to be cold and stiff. It may be appropriate for just one of you to go into that job to confirm a recognition of life extinct with these patients. I guess the other thing to talk about is around how we sort of support family during this time. And because I think, you know, for me, this is something we've probably got wrong um, as this pandemic developed both pre-hospitally and in both in hospital. You know, if we're wearing all this PPE, but actually if the relatives have been in the house with that patient, um, I think we need to do absolutely everything we can to support them to be with that patient as we don't know when they'll next be able to see them or what the arrangements will be for funerals, whether they'll be able to attend, etc. If there's someone who's happened to shield, are they someone who can actually attend that funeral? Um, I guess the other key thing to bear in mind is that if you've got members of family who haven't been in that household with that patient, um, you probably shouldn't be le letting them into that house. But that becomes more difficult, doesn't it? You know, we've seen a lot of hospitals um, restricting or stopping visiting altogether. But in someone's house, that's a lot more difficult. Um, and I wonder, you know, it's not a situation I've had to be in, but I wonder whether there's a role for 
us trying to facilitate a good death as such at this point. And, and whether we can even, you know, if we've got close family turning up who are distressed, or, you know, want to see their relatives, maybe we can facilitate some PPE for them in order to sort of allow them to safely see that patient. And I know somewhere someone will be cringing at that thought, but, you know, these are, these are unknown times. And I think it's around trying to give, deliver a good death as such. Um, when everything else has got wrong yeah i completely agree with that and again it's something that i've been doing more recently and you know who who are we to say how people want to deal with the passing away of, of one of their loved ones and i kind of think our role as healthcare professionals in that situation is, is probably around public awareness you know we're, we're not police we it's not up to us what people do and how they interpret guidance um, but i think our role then is to to ensure that people are aware of the risks that they might potentially take and so in, in my practice, I've been doing just, just like you say, explaining to people the reason that we're wearing such a high level of PPE, um, the potential concern for for their um, relative carrying the COVID-19 uh, or the you know SARS-CoV-2 virus and, and therefore being able to transmit it um, and the reasons for social distancing. Um, however, you know, the way someone interprets that is, is complex and emotional. And really, I don't think that's up to me. Um, as to as to what their actions are then um so yeah like you say if if they do choose to come into the house especially someone that's been living with that person um you know providing them with pp if they want it um is you know it's it doesn't cost us much um and i think it's appropriate thing to do to, to minimize infection yeah and i think if they're going into that environment anyway you know actually by giving them the ppe you're potentially minimizing the chances of them then passing it on to somebody else um, and therefore I feel that's appropriate use of PPE and I think we only get one chance to get this right don't we you know um, and if it's someone who's not going to be able to attend that funeral um, whether that be because they've got to shield or whatever other circumstances are there you may potentially what you're delivering is something potentially life-changing for that person isn't it mate absolutely that I completely agree perfect so so to summarize sort of the role criteria i think it's around minimum people with a patient we've talked about ppe um we've talked about trying to facilitate family and relatives um but with sort of no real specific guidance as to how you do that the only other thing to sort of do is to make the police when you're making the police aware just to highlight whether it's a suspected covid case or not um just to be aware that their processes might have changed um and i know there's been sort of talk around as the pandemic in the early stages of the pandemic progressed sort of in what capacity the police would respond but certainly in our local area they appear to still be responding in sort of their normal capacity um so to summarize then um what we're dealing with is a potentially fatal respiratory pandemic uh, the knowledge of which is rapidly increasing and changing and for that reason we kind of need to stay on top of it um, as much as we can with ongoing reading and awareness of, of adapting of guidelines um, there's no cure yet, and so social distancing and in infection prevention control and PPE are of fundamental importance in how we're managing our jobs. Um, COVID-19 may be a primary diagnosis in patients, or it might be a concomitant problem. Um, and either way, there is still the uh, potential for patients to spread aerosols, um, and so staff safety really is of paramount importance in all the patients that are attending. 
Patients may present abnormally and the disease appears to be kind of ubiquitous. And so full observations, including a temperature and blood sugar level, um, are really indicated in, in everyone, regardless of their presentation to us. Excellent basics with particular care paid to breathing management is, is likely to be beneficial. And we've discussed the benefits of, of really closely assessing uh, oxygen saturations and continuing to monitor them as we provide interventions um, to increase patients' oxygen levels. Um, good communication on scene is uh, more important than ever and also with receiving units. Um, we know that different intensive care units and different hospitals are coping with um, the number of patients they're dealing with differently. And so it's useful to be aware that triage may be affected um, when we're trying to find uh, appropriate hospitals for the post-ROSC or critically ill patient. And finally, we should remember that this is a pandemic and it is potentially extremely dangerous. We know that healthcare workers in ITU and that have passed away because of this disease. And therefore, I think it's really important that we stay on top of our guidelines and trust procedures. We ensure that we take the time to look after ourselves rather than rushing into patient care, even if sometimes that doesn't feel too comfortable. And finally, we should all feel empowered to prioritise our, our own safety so that we can continue to provide the best care for patients that we can and really get through this thing and out the other side. Um, so, mate, a big thank you for coming on. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time, and I know it took um, a fair bit of preparation to put this uh, episode together. So, yeah, thanks for coming on, mate. Thank you for having me. Um, and finally, um, a big thanks to everyone that's contributed with questions and advice on Twitter. Um, another shout-out to our peer reviewer, Dr Joanna Paul, um, who looked through and made sure we weren't making any glaring errors on the pathophysiology side. Um, and finally, a big thanks to my friend Jack Newman, who's the sound recordist that provided me with the equipment to record this stuff and some advice on uh, mixing and publishing the podcast. So finally, um, if you haven't already, please do like and subscribe. Um, and yeah, we look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.